Sherlock Holmes. We present Barry Foster as Sherlock Holmes and David Buck as Dr. Watson in a new dramatization of the short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Red-Headed League, dramatized by Michael Bakewell. My good friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, had a love of all that was bizarre and outside the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life. Yet few of the adventures which I have had the good fortune to chronicle have exhibited features quite so bizarre as that of the Red-Headed League, an affair which began, I believe harmlessly enough, with a conversation between a pawnbroker and his assistant. Oh, I wish to the Lord, Mr. Wilson, that I had your head of hair. What did you say, Sporting? Well, I said I wished I had your head of hair, Mr. Wilson. Here's another vacancy for the League of the Red-Headed Men. Oh, what's that? Well, it, it's in the uh, Morning Chronicle. I'll, I'll read it to you, Mr. Wilson. Yeah, right. Uh, and to the Red-Headed League, on account of the bequest of the late Ezekiah Hopkins of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, USA. Yeah. There is now another vacancy open which entitles a member of the League to a salary of £4 a week for purely nominal services. What? <laughs> All red-headed men who are sound in body and mind and above the age of 21 years are eligible. Apply in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross at the offices of the League, 7 Pope's Court, Fleet Street. Yeah, that's a hope, surely. Can you say you never heard of it? Well, you know me, Spalding. I never put my foot across a doormat for weeks on end. What's it all about? Well, uh, as far as I can make out, the League was founded by an American millionaire, Ezekiah Hopkins. Yeah. He was very peculiar in his ways. He was himself red-headed, and he had a great sympathy for all red-headed men. Oh. So w when he died, it was found that he'd left his enormous fortune in the hands of trustees with instructions to apply the interest to the providing of easy births to men whose hair is of that colour. But there'd be millions of red-headed men who would apply. Oh, well, not as many as you might think, Mr. Wilson. But Hopkins first struck it lucky in London, so it seems, and the affair is confined to Londoners. Ah. But he wanted to do the old town a good turn. But, and it's not, uh, not just any kind of red hair thereafter. Yeah, it has to be real bright, blazing, fiery red, like yours, Mr. Wilson. Yeah? Well, perhaps it would hardly be worth your while to put yourself out of the way for the sake of a few hundred pounds. My lord, Spaldy, might take your breath away. Just like a costermonger's bird. I've never seen anything like it. I wouldn't have thought there were so many redheads in the whole country. Ah, oh, useless. We'll never get through. Oh, don't despair, Mr. Wilson. You're the, there's not a head there that can compare with yours. 
don't be bashful, sir. We'll find a way through. But it's impossible. Now, just hold on to me, sir. We'll get through. Yeah, that's the way. Yeah, but mind your back, sir, you please. You think you're just, just, just hold on tight, Mr. Wilson, sir. Excuse me, my friends. Do, do you mind letting us through? Thank you, Thank you kindly. Nearly there, Mr. Wilson. Don't despair. Now, up these steps and through this doorway. There you see, sir. I told you we'd get through. And only one man ahead of us. That must be Mr. Duncan Ross at the desk. Oh, his hair's even redder than mine. Not much of a place, though, is it, Spoon? Oh, just you wait and see, sir. And, uh, you're an idiot. I'm Rose Maxstone. Well, then, Mr. Maxstone, I have called your heel Phil Callum to myself. I mean, you can't really call that Fred, can you? And where do you come from? Lewisham? Lewisham, well, that settles it. Lewisham doesn't qualify. Thank you, Mr. Next, please. Ah. Oh, my dear sir. Do please step this way. What a magnificent specimen. This is Mr. Jabez Wilson. And he is willing to fill a vacancy in the lake. And you are admirably suited for it, Mr. Wilson. You have every requirement. I cannot recall when I have seen anything so fine. Just let me look at you. Yeah, I, uh, so it would be injustice to hesitate. You will, however, I am sure, excuse me for taking one obvious precaution. Yeah. Oh, no, let go, let go, sir. Ah, no. I perceive that all is as it should be. But we have to be careful, for we have twice been deceived by wigs, and once by paint. I could tell you tales of cobbler's wax, which would disgust you with human nature. I just put these poor, inferior fellows out of their misery. <laughs> the vacancy has been filled. Now, Mr. Wilson, let me introduce myself. My name is Duncan Ross, oh, and sir. I uh, am myself one of the pensioners upon the fund left by our noble benefactor. <coughs> when shall you be able to enter upon your new duties? Uh, well, it, it, it is a little awkward, for I have a business already. Oh, oh well, don't you worry about that, Mr. Wilson. I'll be able to look after that for you. What will be the hours? A ten until two. Ah, oh, well, Mr. Ross, that might suit me very well. I have a little pawnbroking business, you see. Most of my business is done in the evenings. Uh, and, and the pay? Is four pounds a week. Oh, <laughs> and the work? Is purely nominal. What do you call purely nominal? The most important point is that you have to be in the office the whole time. I see. <laughs> if you leave, you forfeit your position forever. The will is very clear on that point. Yes. No excuse will avail. Neither sickness, nor business, nor anything else. But what exactly does the work consist of? You are to copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh. You will find the first volume in that press over there. You must find your own pens, ink, and blotting paper, but we provide this table and chair. Will you be ready tomorrow? Yes, most certainly. Then, goodbye, Mr. Jabez Wilson, and let me congratulate you once more upon the important position which you have been fortunate enough to gain. And that's how it was, Mr. Holmes. 
For eight weeks, I turned up every morning sharp at ten and began my work. Every Saturday, Mr. Ross would come in and plonk down four golden sovereigns on my desk. Hmm. And was he there all the time? After a time, he did not come at all, but of course I never dared leave the room for an instant. It is all quite singular, don't you agree, Watson? <laughs> quite extraordinary. Continue, Mr. Wilson. Well, gentlemen, I had written about abbots and archery and architecture and armour and Attica and hoped that with diligence I might get onto the bees before very long. And then suddenly the whole business came to an end. To an end? Yes, sir. I went to my work this morning at ten o'clock, but the door was shut and bolted with a little square of cardboard hammered on with a tack. Here it is. You can read it for yourself. Mm. The red-headed league is dissolved October 9th, 1890. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot see there's anything very funny. If you can do no better than laugh at me, I can go elsewhere. No, no, no. Sit down, Mr. Wilson. I really wouldn't miss your case for the world. It is most refreshingly unusual. Mm. But there is, if you'll excuse my saying so, something just a little funny about it. Tell me... Did you manage to trace Mr. Ross? Well, that's just it, Mr. Holmes. It seems his name wasn't Ross at all. He told the landlord his name was William Morris, that he was a solicitor who wanted the room while his new premises were set up. He left a forwarding address, 17 King Edward Street. And did you go there? It was a manufactory of artificial kneecaps. <laughs> I came straight away to you. And you did very wisely. Yeah. Is there anything else I can tell you, Mr. Holmes? About what? About the business, about myself. About yourself? Well, it's obvious that you have at some time done manual labor, that you take snuff, that you are a Freemason, and that you have been in China. That much I've been able to deduce. <sighs> How in the name of good fortune do you know all that, Mr. Holmes? How did you know, for example, that I did manual labour? <laughs> well, it's as true as gospel. I began as a ship's carpenter. Your hands, my dear sir. Your right hand is quite a size larger than your left. You have worked with it and the muscles are more developed. Well, <laughs> it, well we're a snuff, then. Snuff? Oh. Yeah. And, and the Freemasonry? I won't insult your intelligence by telling you how I read that, especially as rather against the strict rules of your order you use an arc and compass breast pin oh of course <laughs> i forgot that <laughs> what about china the fish which you have tattooed immediately above your right wrist could only have been done in china i have made a small study of tattoo marks and have even contributed to the literature of the subject the trick of staining the fish's scales with a delicate pink is quite peculiar to china when, in addition, I see a Chinese coin hanging from your watch chain, the matter becomes even more simple. Well, I never. But I'm more curious to know about this assistant of yours who first drew your attention to the advertisement. Has he been with you long? Uh, he had been with me for a month when the affair first started. He wanted to learn the business and was prepared to work for half wages. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have had a job to pay him. Indeed. I don't know that your assistant is not as remarkable as your advertisement. Oh, he has his faults. Never was such a fellow for photography. <laughs> Snapping away with the camera when he ought to be improving his mind and then diving down to the pawn shop cellar like a rabbit to develop his pictures. And what's he like, this Vincent Spaulding? Well, 
He must be over thirty, Mr. Holmes, yet there's no hair on his face. Small, stout, built very quick in his ways. He's a he's got a white splash of acid upon his forehead. Has he by Jove? Have you observed that his ears are pierced for earrings? Why, yes, sir. He told me that a gypsy had done it for him when he was a lad. That will do, then, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday. I hope that by Monday we shall come to a conclusion. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. It would be a weight off my mind to find out who was behind this stupid prank. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Yes. Well, Watson, what do you make of it all? Me? Uh, I, I make nothing of it at all. Uh, it is a most mysterious business. It's quite a three-pipe problem. I beg you, Watson, that you won't speak to me for 15 minutes. He curled himself up in his chair with his thin knees drawn up to his hawk-like nose. And there he sat with his eyes closed and his black clay thrusting out like the bill of some strange bird. I had come to the conclusion that he had dropped asleep. Then, suddenly, up he sprang. Ah, Sarasati plays at St. James's Hall this afternoon. What do you think, Watson? Could your patience spare you for a few hours? I have nothing particular to do today. <laughs> my practice is never very absorbing. There's a good deal of German music on the program, which is more to my taste than Italian or French. It is introspective, and I want to introspect. Put on your hat. We've time to call it Mr. Jabez Wilson's pawn shop on the way. Uh, Saxe-Coburg Square. <laughs> what a very prepossessing neighborhood. No wonder Mr. Wilson finds business so bad. And there it is. Ah, J.B.'s Wilson and three somewhat grimy gilt balls. <laughs> now then, let us try a simple experiment. <clears throat> what exactly do you hope to learn from beating the pavement holes? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. We are spies in an enemy's country. I think we might, however, try the door. Good day, sir. Uh, would you care to step inside? Uh, thank you. I only wish to ask you how you would go from here to the Strand. Uh, uh, third right, fourth left. How very obliging of you. Good day, sir. Smart fellow there. He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London for daring. And with that accent, I'm not sure that he hasn't a claim to be the third. Now then, Watson. We know something of Saxe-Coburg Square. Let us see what lies behind it. Oh, evidently, Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a great deal in this mystery of the uh, Red-Headed League. I'm sure that you inquired your way merely in order that you might take a look at it. Not him. Oh. What then? The knees of his trousers. These his trousers. What did you see there? What I expected to see. Now, I'd just like to remember the order of the houses behind here. It is a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. 
There is Mortimer's, the tobacconist. A little newspaper shop. The Coburg branch of the City and Suburban Bank. Vegetarian restaurant. And McFarlane's carriage building depot. Which carries us to the end of the block. And now, Doctor, we've done our work, so it's time we had some play. Let us be off to violin land, where all is sweetness and delicacy and harmony, and there are no red-headed clients to vex us with their troubles. <laughs> afternoon he sat beside me in the stalls wrapped in the most perfect happiness gently waving his long thin fingers in time to the music while his gently smiling face and his languid dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes the sleuth hound Holmes the relentless keen-witted criminal agent as it was possible to conceive yet I knew well that it was at such moments as these that he was at his most formidable This business at Coburg Square is serious, Watson. Why serious? A considerable crime is in contemplation. I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it. But today, being Saturday, rather complicates matters. I shall need your help tonight. At what time? Ten will be early enough. I shall be at Baker Street at ten. Very well. And I say, Doctor, there may be some little danger, so kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbors, but I was always oppressed with a sense of my own stupidity in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. Here, I had heard what he had heard and seen what he had seen, yet he saw clearly what had happened, while to me the whole business was still confused, even grotesque. What was this nocturnal expedition, and why should I go armed? Our party is complete. Watson, I think you know Mr. Jones of Scotland Yard. Ah, yes, indeed. Uh, we're hunting in couples again tonight, Doctor. Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting a chase. And let me introduce you to Mr. Meadowweather, ah. who is to be our companion in tonight's adventure. Yes, I hope a wild goose may not prove to be the end of our chase. Oh, you may place considerable confidence in Mr. Holmes, sir. He has his own little methods, which are, if he doesn't mind me saying so, just uh, a little too theoretical and fantastic. But he has the makings of a detective, Oh, well, if you say so, Mr. Jones, that's all right. Still, I, I, I confess I shall miss my rubber. This is the first Saturday night for seven and thirty years that I have not had my rubber. I think that you will find that you will play for a higher stake tonight than you have ever done yet, and that the play will be more exciting. <laughs> for you, Mr. Meadowweather, the stake will be some £30,000. And for you, Jones, it will be the man upon whom you wish to lay your hands. Ah. John Clay, the murderer, thief and forger. I would rather have my bracelets on him than on any criminal in London. He's a remarkable man, is John Clay. His grandfather was a royal duke. And he himself has been to Eton and Oxford. I've been on his track for years. And I've never set eyes on him yet. Well, I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. It is past ten, however, and quite time that we started. Two handsomes are waiting outside. If you will take the first, gentlemen, Watson and I will follow in the second. We're close now, Watson. Ah. This fellow Merriweather is a bank director and personally interested in the matter. 
I thought it as well to have Jones with us. He's as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he gets his claws on anyone. And you see where we are, Watson? Oh, yes, the streets by Saxe-Coburg Square, where you were so meticulous in noting the order of the houses. Precisely, Watson. And we are about to enter the city and suburban bank. Now, if you'll be so good as to follow me, gentlemen. Uh, after you, Holmes. I must say the building seems secure enough. Of course it is. At this present time, we have to be particularly careful. Why so? Our French gold, Doctor. Now take care coming down the steps, gentlemen. They're quite steep. We've had several warnings that an attempt might be made upon it. Your French gold? Yes. yes. We had occasion some months ago to strengthen our resources and borrowed for that purpose 30,000 Napoleons from the Bank of France. What a mess! Now, this is the vault in which it has been stored. Now, you never had occasion to unpack the money. Now, that crate there contains 2,000 Napoleons packed between layers of lead foil. You are not very vulnerable from above. <laughs> Nor from below, Mr. Holmes. The floor has been particularly strengthened. Well, it sounds quite hollow. I really must ask you to keep quiet. You're imperiling the whole success of our expedition. Might I beg that you would have the goodness to sit down upon one of those crates and not to interfere? Yeah. You will observe what how the cement has been whittled away from between the flagstones. Good Lord, yet. Mm -hmm. We must put the screen over that dark lantern, Inspector. But and sit in the dark? I'm afraid so. We have an hour or so to wait. But first of all, we must choose our positions. These are daring men. And may do us some harm unless we are careful. I shall stand behind this crate and you behind us. Then when I flash a light upon them, close in swiftly. If they fire, Watson, have no compunction about shooting them down. Uh, of course, of course. Are you ready, gentlemen? Yes. I suppose so. Then I will close the lantern. And now, we must be silent and wait. What a time it seemed. It was but an hour and a quarter, yet it appeared to me that the night must be almost gone and the dawn be breaking above us. Then, I saw a gleam of light appear between the stones of the floor. It lengthened until it became a yellow line, and then a gash seemed to open, and a hand appeared. A white, almost womanly hand, which felt about in the centre of the little area of light. It's all clear. Have you the chisel and the bags, Archie? I have them here. Then up you come. Great Scott, Archie, jump! I've lost you. Run for it, Archie! No use, John Clay. You have no chance at all. So I see. I fancy that my pal is all right. I see you've got his coattails. There are three officers at the door in Saxe-Coburg Square. We've stopped all the holes. Oh, indeed. Well, you seem to have done the thing very completely. I must compliment you. And I you. Your red-headed idea was very new and effective. You'll see your pal again presently, Mr. Clay. Just hold your hands while I fix the derbies. I beg that you will not touch me with your filthy hands. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. 
You have the goodness also, when you address me, always to say, sir, and please. And sort. All right. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs, where a cab will be waiting, to carry your highness to the police station. That is better. Uh, farewell, gentlemen. Uh, enough for you, Holmes? Perfect, thank you. You see, Watson, it was quite obvious from the first that the only possible object of this fantastic business of the advertisement of the League and the copying of the Encyclopedia Britannica must be to get this not over-bright pawnbroker out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but really it would be difficult to devise a better. The method was no doubt suggested to Clay's ingenious mind by the colour of his accomplice's hair. The four pounds a week was a lure which must draw Mr. Jabez Wilson, and what was it to them who were playing for thousands? They put in the advertisement. One rogue has the temporary office, the other rogue incites his employer to apply for it. And together they managed to secure his absence every morning in the week. From the time I heard of the assistant having come for half wages, it was obvious to me that he had some strong motive for securing the situation. Yes, but how could you guess what the motive was? Had there been women in the house, I should have suspected a more vulgar intrigue. <laughs> that, however, was out of the question. The man's business was a small one. There was nothing in his house which could account for such elaborate preparations and such an expenditure as they were at. It must then be something out of the house. What could it be? I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. The cellar. There was the end of this tangled clue. And then I made inquiries as to this mysterious assistant and found that I had to deal with one of the coolest and most daring criminals in London. He was doing something in the cellar, something which took many hours a day for months on end. What could it be once more? I could think of nothing save that he was running a tunnel to some other building. Amazing, though. So far, I had got when we went to visit the scene of action. I surprised you by beating upon the pavement with my stick. By Jove, you did, of course. I see it now. You were trying to find out whether the cellar stretched out in front or behind. Exactly. It was not in front. And then I rang the bell, and as I hoped, the assistant answered it. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wanted to see. Yes, of course. They were wrinkled and stained. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. Yeah, and the remaining point was, what were they burrowing for? I walked round the corner, saw the city and suburban bank butted on our friend's premises, and felt that I had solved my problem. But how could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight? Well, when they closed their league offices, that was a sign that they cared no longer about Mr. Jabez Wilson's ah. presence. In other words, they had completed their tunnel. But it was essential that they use it soon it might be discovered, or the bullion might be removed. Saturday would suit them better than any other day, as it would give them two days for their escape. For all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight. Yes, you reasoned it out beautifully, Holmes. It's so long a chain, and yet every link rings true. It saved me from ennui. Alas, <laughs> I already feel it closing in upon me. My life is spent in one long effort to escape from the 
commonplaces of existence. These little problems help me to do so. That was Barry Foster as Sherlock Holmes and David Buck as Dr. Watson in The Red-Headed League by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell. Javis Wilson was played by Geoffrey Matthews, John Clay by Michael Harbour, Duncan Ross, Michael Deacon, Inspector Jones, Jack Holloway, and Mr. Merriweather by Stephen Hancock. The play was directed in our Birmingham studios by Roger Pine.